So here's our objective this morning. What, the objective this morning is to not uh, be so and lost in everything. We could do that with this, but we only have 40 minutes, so we're going to try to do one thing. How does the glory of God alone, living for the glory of God alone, change the way that I live my life? How does it change the way that I live every single day? We're not going to be able to look at, to if any kind of exhaustive extent, to the, the undeniable biblical truth that God will be glorified. He will be, bar none, will be glorified. will be ultimately the one receiving any glory. Isaiah 42, 8 and 48, 11 say so. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. And then 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. At the end of all things, God will be glorified. There's no doubt. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can alter it or change it or dilute it. But with our time today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on looking at the life overhauling truth that is soli deo gloria. So 100 years, so all of these solas have kind of, not kind of, they have come from the Protestant Reformation that happened in the 1500s. 100 years after that, like 100 years after the middle of that Protestant Reformation, so we're talking like the middle of the 1600s, 1640s. In response to that, these men all got together, pastors and theologians at Westminster Abbey in England in the 1640s, and they referred to throughout history as the Westminster Divines. Now, that's a pretty powerful name to get to call yourself. If you want to call me a divine, I'm fine with that. I do have a master's of divinity, as if divinity can be mastered. It's kind of a, an arrogant title <laughs> to give to yourself. Anyways, they called them the Westminster Divines, and these men got together, and they sat in this room called the Jerusalem, the back of Westminster Abbey there in London. And over several years, they wrote and worked out what is called now the Westminster Standards. Now, the Westminster Standards, that just includes the Westminster Confession of Faith, the shorter catechism and the longer catechism. Now, if you don't know what that means, a confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the word confession, when you hear that, all you need to think is exhaustive doctrinal statement. That just means we are condensing down 66 books of inerrant scripture into a pamphlet of what we believe. This is what the Bible teaches about these major principles of the faith. That's what a confession is. Now, the catechisms, when you hear that, I don't know what your background is. You may have a little bit of PTSD, like, oh, that sounds Catholic or that sounds Episcopalian. Catechism is just a question and answer format to teach kids and adults the truths of the Christian faith. So asking questions like, who is God? And then you respond with the answer. And then it gives verse references below it. That's what those are. And they created these, this long document for this reason. They did that to clarify what it is they were. They're, they're Protestants, but, and that sounds so basic to us and familiar to us, but, but they've broken away from the only church that the Western world has ever known. They've got to figure out what do we believe. We've got to write this down and confess it and agree to it. So that's why they had guys from all over the United Kingdom come. Even in the middle of the Civil War that was happening at that time, they still met and did that. And, that, and they came out with the Westminster Standards, and conservative Presbyterian churches use it today as their doctrinal statement and their corporate confession. Now, the Shorter Catechism, this is what I'm driving to. The Shorter Catechism, has a, it's short, that's with the name, but there's still 107 questions. Well, it's pretty long. The long one is like 190 questions. The first question in it is this, is what is the chief end of man. Question number one in this document that they would use uh, and that conservative Presbyterian churches use still to the day to teach their kids and their youth the just what Christianity means, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of humanity? And you know what the answer is? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the answer to the question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, why begin there, Westminster divines? Why begin? Why is that question number one that you want everybody to have to wrestle with? If they never make it past question one, and if they certainly don't make it to question 107, why begin there? 
because that's where all right living begins from that mindset. But we have to ask ourselves is, do we really believe that? That the chief end of man, that our chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do we really believe that the only reason that any human being has ever been on the face of the earth is to glorify God? That there's no other reason to justify human existence outside of God getting glory. I think we do believe that. I think we do. At least we talk like that. But what we have to ask ourselves is what do we mean when we say glorify God? Now, I grew up at a, at a Christian school or one of the schools I went to was a Christian school. And every game that you play before sports, what do you pray? Chance, do you know? What are we going to pray? Help us to glorify you today, God. Help us to glorify you today. We'd all pray that. But then I started scratching my head eventually later on going, well, how do we know we did it? If we won, does that mean that we glorified God? Because what if we're playing another Christian school? Somebody's going to end up not glorifying God because somebody's going to lose. Only one person gets to win, at least back then. I don't know if it was true anymore. And maybe everybody wins now. But we didn't know. I mean, how are we going to glorify God? So what we're going to look at principally this morning is how do we do this thing that we all say that we should do? How do we live this thing that we all say is fundamentally true? That all of human life is to the glory of God. All of creation, all of existence is to the glory of God. I think we do this, let's just break it down as simply as we can, by what we believe and by how we act. We're going to unpack that. But the glory of God alone is principally manifested by what we believe and how we act. And we're going to look at those two things, and then we're going to look at a case study in the scriptures of how to live that out. So what do we believe? Soli Deo Gloria. It guides us into the intimidating waters of Christian belief, of doctrine and theology and those kinds of things that sometimes we feel that, man, unless you're like a genius of just unprecedented brilliance, how can you be confident in what we affirm that we believe as Christians? I mean, come on, we're not all Paul Rasmussen's. Some of us are just normal people with normal-sized brains. And I made that joke before I knew he was going to be in Trek during this time. So that's kind of a bummer. It would have landed a little better had he been in here. But leave it for another day. But it can be truly daunting to settle on our Christian beliefs, right? And this is truthfully, this, if we're going to be honest historically, this is one area where the Protestant Reformation doesn't really help us a whole lot. Because have you ever looked out at just, just look at McKinney, Texas, and why is there a different denomination on every corner? How did we get here? How did it get like this? You and I were just born, and this is how it was. But how did it get to be like this? I mean, this is really an unpleasant byproduct of the Protestant Reformation, is the existence of denominations. I mean, because if, if you go back to there being none of this, go back to 1516, 1517, Martin Luther nails his theses on the door. If you go back to 1516, there is one church. There's one. Is it? And even to this day... Uh, you can't open a Roman Catholic church on your own. It just, it kills entrepreneurialism. You can't just say, hey, we have a church and we're Catholic. Like, no, you're not. Where's your credentials? Where's your paper? Where's your this? You can't, you can't just open one on your own. That's, that can't happen. But before the first generation of reformers were even dead, you had at least four denominations. You had the Lutherans in Germany. You had Switzerland that was split. You had the Reformed camp that followed Calvin. You had the Reformed camp that followed Zwingli. And then kind of all over, the, the crazies were the Anabaptists, and they're just running all over. So before you even have the first generations of those guys die, you have four different denominations now. And so now we have just dozens and dozens and dozens of them. So now we live in a swirling sea of denominations, all different than each other, for all different varying degrees. How do we cut through all of this? What's our guiding principle? How do we know who is confessing the truth? Because everyone says, well, we just, we just believe the Bible. We just, we just believe the Bible. If that's true, then how come there's so many different groups saying we just believe the Bible? So we need a guiding principle. And we're not going to cut through absolutely everything. I'll just give you one that we're talking about today is soli deo gloria. 
when I'm interpreting the scriptures, what's guiding me through this is how is God going to get the most glory? When I come to a hard text, which interpretation does God alone get the glory? Which one? Makes it pretty simple, right? And here's what can give us even more reprieve. We're not the first Christians to ever think that thought and come to the scriptures going, what do we make of these? We're not the first ones that have ever done that. Our brothers and sisters have walked this path way before us. The church is 2,000 years old. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's why I love the Westminster Standards. It's 375 years old. And we heard the first question, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The last question of the shorter catechism, question 107, so I'm going to give you the bookends today. It's the last series of questions is about the Lord's Prayer. And the last question in the whole catechism, number 107, says this. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, and then it quotes it, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only and in our prayers and to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen. So it, ends with, it begins with God's glory, and then it ends with God's glory. The interpretive principle, the most fundamental one. There are others underneath that in how we study and learn the Bible. The first one is, how does God get the most glory? Jesus ran into this. Jesus, in John chapter 5, because we have to initially say, like, what does it, mean? What does it matter a bunch of people in the United Kingdom wrote 375 years ago if the scriptures don't support it? But Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees at one point and in the middle of his ministry. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Hang on to that. The scriptures bear witness about me is what Jesus is saying. The Old Testament's talking about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. I do not receive glory from people. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's a hard word. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There was no one who accuses you. Moses, there is one rather who accuses you. It's Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses, who wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, wrote of Jesus, according to Jesus. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What was Jesus saying? It was just some, there's a lot there. We're not going to be able to unpack it all right now. But what, essentially what he's doing, he's rebuking the teachers of his day because they've cultivated a religious climate that was consumed with the glory of man. That's what they're saying. You receive glory from each other. That's what you're after. That's what you've built is a system that glorifies man, a created being. That's what you've done. You've twisted the scriptures in order to be that way. You've made the Bible anthropocentric, not theocentric. Now, those are $5 words. What does that mean? Anthro, man. Not anthropology, not, not a store. It's a study of humankind. Anthropocentric means centered around man. Theocentric means centered around God. So what they had done, what Jesus was indicting them of, is that you've taken this Bible and you've said, this revolves around man. We get glory back and forth to each other. And Jesus is saying, if that's your perspective, then you've missed it because the whole book is talking about me. The whole, they speak of me, he said. Moses wrote of me, he said. Did, do you see Jesus in Genesis and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy? That's what he's saying because he's there. The whole book is about him. He is the main character. Everybody else is supporting roles or antagonists. That's our only option. The only roles that we can play, that we can see in the scriptures, we're either opposed to Christ or we're supporting Christ. That's it. We're never the main character. We're never the main focus. And if roles become confused, that's why Jesus is saying such a hard 
them, then souls become jeopardized. If we move one millimeter off of the, the path, the truth, the, the mindset, the philosophy that leads to the glory of God alone. If we move one millimeter off of that, then we're in risk of sinking the whole ship. I did a little bit of reading this week. and uh, When planes are on a trajectory, airplanes are on a trajectory, for every, what was it? Every degree, that's what it is. Every degree off of their flight plan that they are. One degree off every 60 miles they fly, they're a mile off of where they're trying to land. So that puts it like this. If a plane leaves DFW and is going straight north to Chicago, landing at O'Hare Airport, if it's one degree off, one degree off, that's the difference between landing on the runway at O'Hare and crash landing in Lake Michigan. 16 miles away from the airport. You crash landing into the water because you're one degree off. And that's what this principle does for us is it keeps us from being one degree off. I mean, have, I mean, just continuing thinking about history and losing this perspective of soli deo gloria, how does Harvard end up the way that it is? Have you ever been to Harvard? Have you ever pushed behind the tree that's at the front gate and where it says why the university was founded on the wall with a brick? You know what the brick says? It says this was founded... In the 1600s, when we came here because we realized we needed to be able to train men for the proclamation of the gospel. And so we founded this institution to train ministers and theologians so that we might not go astray. That's at Harvard. Do you think they're proud of that now? Or is that to their universal shame now? How did they get there? How did it get to where? Because it wasn't like if that happened in the 2000s. In the 1700s, they had already pondered the Trinity and Christ alone. In the 1700s, that was happening. So how do do we get off? Let's look at a biblical example. How does idolatry become institutionalized in Israel? How does it become to where the kings begin this cycle of constantly, the good kings, tearing down idols that they have to go and cut down all these temples and all these high places with Ashtoreth on them and Baals on them. It's actually Baal, but I'll say Baal so we don't make everybody go lose their minds. It made me lose my mind when I heard that. But how, how did it get to be that place? Let me just tell you a quick story real quick. Judges 17. You don't have to turn there because we're just going to skim it. In Judges 17, there is a wealthy, arrogant man named Micah. Micah decides he wants to do whatever he wants to do in Judges 17. And that's the theme of Judges. There's no king in Israel, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Micah is the example of that. He wants to do whatever he wants in his spiritual life. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to build my own temple, and I'm going to build my own idols, and I'm going to have my own little spiritual world. I'm going to just do this on my own. And then this young Levite is just wandering around, wandering around the countryside, rolls up to Micah's house. Micah says, hey, you can stay here with me if you want. And he's like, okay. And he goes, hey, wait a minute. How about this? I built a place of worship. I have all these idols. You're a priest. Be my priest for my little family and my little homestead here. And the Levite goes, great. Sounds like a sweet gig. I mean, I don't have really marketable skills with all this praying and ritualizing and stuff. And so I got to find a job, and I found a job. So he finds a job, and he stays there. And then in Judges 18, the very next chapter, Micah and his family, they get sieged by the rogue tribe of Dan. So Dan, being a tribe of Israel, they come and oppose Micah. They take all his stuff. They kind of just push him around. They don't really end up killing that many people, but they just kind of take whatever they want from him. And they go, hey, Levite, you are a priest to one guy. What about being a priest to a whole tribe? That's an upgrade. And the Levite goes, you're right. That is a promotion. Sure. I'll come right along with you. So then he brings an institutionalized idolatry because they take all of Micah's idols. Brings institutionalized idolatry in Judges. What was the book they came into the land in? Joshua, which is the book immediately before that. And by the 18th chapter of Judges, you already have institutionalized idolatry. And who is that Levite? Look at Judges 18.30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, 
and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Do you see who that Levite was? Moses' grandson. Moses' grandson is the Levite who establishes institutionalized idolatry among the people of God. If it can happen to the grandson of the man who was literally shining the glory of God. Do you remember that in Exodus 34? Moses comes off the mountain. He can't even show his face because the glory of God is so luminescent off of him after being up on Mount Sinai. That guy's grandson is the one who brings in institutionalized idolatry. If it can happen in that family, you better believe it can happen to us. Our guiding principle in life is, does this glorify God? How will it glorify God? This comes to bear in our interpretations of hard texts in the Bible. If God's glory alone is what we're after, then hard passages don't really become hard. They become hard to receive, but they're not hard to understand. It may be difficult for me to really embrace it, but I definitely know what it means. I definitely know what it's saying. I mean, look at these, look at creation in Genesis 1. It, I don't, it doesn't become hard to receive the age of the earth being as young as it looks like in Genesis 1 when I'm, all I'm desiring is for God to receive the glory that he's rightly due. More glory than random evolution or unmanaged natural selection. Or, or like the cleansing of Canaan in Joshua. How do we be able to receive that if we don't have a principle of God's glory alone? He's after God's, he's after his own glory, cultivating an environment that he can be glorified in is why he had to do that in Joshua, or he chose to do that. What about the instant deaths in the Bible? Have you read those? Leviticus 10, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they walk in to the temple offering strange fire. God kills them immediately. What about Uzzah and 2 Samuel 6? The ox cart gets tumped with the Ark of the Covenant on it. He reaches out to grab it. God kills him for doing that. What about Acts 5? Ananias and Sapphira, they come in, lie to Peter. God kills them instantly right there. How do we understand and comprehend if we're not after the glory of God alone? And we're not, we don't realize how serious he is about his own glory. It becomes pretty easy to receive those things when we have that principle. What about predestination? In Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 6, 1 Peter 1, Titus 1, on and on and on and on. It becomes very easy to understand when we're like, oh, after this is how the Bible works. What gives God the most glory? That allows us to understand the scriptures. Because as soon as we begin to think that, well, maybe modern science is a little smarter than the Bible on some things, or maybe modern sexual norms are, maybe they're worthy of a little bit of respect. Maybe sin really isn't as sinful or mankind isn't really as sinful as we, as we once thought, that's taking one step, one degree off of the flight plan. And what does Romans 3.23 say that we are constantly and consistently falling short of? The glory of God. But then what does Romans 15.7 say? Romans 15.7 has the other end of that glory, where Paul is writing this anthology of, uh, of missions and praise of God in Romans 15. And in verse 7, he tells each other in the church, this church, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why did Christ welcome us? For the glory of God. Why did Christ die for us and make salvation available to us by faith alone? It was for the glory of God. That was why. That's, that's his guiding principle. And one degree off of that is the difference between pulling up to the jetway and crashing into the water. One degree off of that. Because when we know what we believe about God, it influences how we act. It can't not influence how we act. Not only how we act towards God, but how we just behave in general. And we, we all know that what we believe influences how we act. That happens in lots of ways. If you didn't first believe that some liquid in a tiny bottle marked lavender, would make your baby sleep better, then you wouldn't be slathering that poor child up with oil every night before you put him to bed. You believed it on the front end, that that would work. So you did it. If you didn't first believe that the Whole30 diet 
would bring about the, the body shape that you wanted, then you would never have walked into that miserable fortnight of pain and suffering. If you didn't first believe that the Rangers had a chance at the World Series, your hopes would not be so high as they are right now. influences how we act. That's why Paul's pattern is pretty typical in the letters that he writes. Romans 1 through 11 is all doctrine, truth, Bible, theology. And then Romans 12 through 16 is practical application. He does that with lots of books. Ephesians 1 through 3 is doctrine. And Ephesians 4 through 6 is how do we apply that? How do we live? Colossians 1 and 2, doctrine. What, what do we believe? And then Colossians 3 and 4 is how do we live? That's how, that's how the Bible works. I mean, that's how we work. We first believe and then we live. And, but we also know we can live it consistently, though, with what we believe. I know, to, I know it to be true, and I'll tell you that donuts are bad for you. And there's no redeeming nutritional value whatsoever, but if you leave them out, I can pound down six plain glaze before you blink. I can live inconsistently with that. But if it wasn't true that Christians can live inconsistently with what they know to be true, then we could just take 1 Corinthians through Jude and cut it out of our Bible. We wouldn't need it. What did Paul write those letters for? Hey, church, you know the truth, but you're not living it out. So he wrote those letters to them. So we can believe soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone, but it has to trickle down how we live. I heard somebody say one time that unapplied truth is no truth at all. Heard somebody else say that if you aren't going to apply the Bible, you might as well not read it. Those are hard words, but they're true. Think about this, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, whatever you do. And the simplicity here of eating and drinking, I mean, if you slid the cup, a cup across the table and said, glorify God. Right now, how you drink that cup. That's Paul putting it down to the most basic of things. Everything that you do, glorify God. Look at 1 Peter 4, 11. Whoever speaks, this is talking, this is in the context of spiritual gifts, and that breaks it down into the two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. But he says this, he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order, or so that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is God to be glorified in everything? Does that mean your secular work? Yes. A lot of times we in the church think like, well, the only person that really glorifies God with what they do is the preacher. The only one who really glorifies God in what they do is the, is the full-time ministry person or the hospice chaplain. But we're all, the rest of us poor schlubs, we're just kind of, you know, we make our money and we send it to the church so that they can glorify God. But we don't really. That's, that's contra to the New Testament. In everything that you do, glorify God. Because it's possible in everything that you do. Does that mean your yard work? I hope so, because I take my yard work very seriously. I want to do it to the glory of God. Does that mean your recreation? How do you recreate to the glory of God? I mean, are we considering God while we're being recreated? That's what recreation is supposed to be, right? What about changing dirty diapers? Can you glorify God with that? My mom had this... Uh, lady, older lady, when she was a young mom, discipling her, and she was talking to her about these verses, uh, this concept of glorifying God in all that you do, and just like every single young mom, feeling super discouraged, and like, what is the point of this? It's just an unending line of diapers and dishes and laundry, over and over and over again. And this nice older lady who was discipling my mom, her name was Gail Seidel, she said, you know, in the first century, there were slaves that had to clean up after uh, the Roman uh, elites would have their kind of drunken feast parties. And what they would do is they would eat until they couldn't eat anymore, and then they would go to these bowls that were carved into the uh, foundation, into kind of the marble, 
and they would just make themselves throw up. So they'd throw up in these bowls, and they'd go back and eat some more. Just, this, is the, this is debauchery. I mean, this is gluttony. This is just sinfulness all the way around. But Paul's writing to slaves who are in that culture who've got to get up the next morning and clean that bowl, and clean that series of bowls. And Paul's saying, do all that you do to glorify God. Now, that puts dirty diapers in a little bit of a better context, at least it did for my mom, but that all that we do glorifies God. And that's awesome to know that that's true. And we probably already all knew that, that was true. But how do I know that what I've done doing it is glorifying God? Jesus gives us another guiding principle in Matthew 5, verse 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to you. I'll give glory to God that how you do the things that you've been given to do, people can watch that and go, what is going on? Why is she so different about that? Why so intense about that or serious or good or excellent at that? And now they have cause to glorify God. They've been given that, that, that guiding principle. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at a case study here to close ourselves out here of just how did somebody do this on, the, on, a, on a normal day's life. And I personally haven't been able to get past, recent, here in the past few months or so, I haven't been able to get past 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings uh, 8. That, that th- those three prophets that are there, Elijah, Elisha, and Micaiah, I just cannot get over those guys. They, they just are they're captivating me right now. So the story that we're going to look at is one that's familiar to us. It's Elisha in chapter 5 of 2 Kings. When Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, comes to him with all this leprosy stuff. But I want us to look at it from this perspective of soli deo gloria. How does Elisha functioning as the gold standard for pursuing the glory of God in everything? Look at these verses. Look at verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them for you. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him... The Lord had given victory to Syria. So why is that guy such a good military leader, this pagan guy? Because God gave him victory. That's a side note. But he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were in the, with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. So that's a small fortune that he takes with him. So the moment here is the, the commander of the army of Syria. The king of Syria is probably the most powerful uh, human being in the Near East at this moment. And his right-hand man, his general of his armies, which is the source of all your power in this kind of world, uh, he has leprosy, and he's wigging out about it. They captured a little girl from Israel a while back, and she says, hey, there is a prophet that you guys need to know about. He could do something about this. Naaman's so desperate, he's like, okay, let's just go off the basis of this little foreign girl that I've stolen. Let's Let's just go off her word. So the king's like, great, go for it. I would love to have you back to full strength. Take a whack at it. Sends him with a letter. Verse 6. Or verse, uh, yeah, verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman brings the letter to the king of Israel along with that small fortune that he's carrying along with him, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. You may cure him. So the king reads it, and then he says this, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, showing a sign of grief, saying, Am I God? To kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? I only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel goes, I am done. He's going to kill me. This guy's just picking a fight because I'm not going to be able to heal his general. And then he's going to be able to say, how could you treat me so wrong? Now I have cause to come and conquer you. So the king of Israel is in panic mode. And he tore his clothes, symbolizing his grief and his fear. And that's, that scene trickled out of the palace to eventually Elisha heard in verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, 
the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know prophet in Israel. What does Elisha say? Hey, this isn't my problem. This isn't my fight. But how about this? Send your problem to me. That's what he says. Send your problem to me. I will volunteer to undertake potentially meddling in the wrath of the Near East's most powerful overlord just because I want to help you out. That's what Elijah says. The king, he's convinced this is a trap, but he's he's going to let it happen. But what does Elisha want Naaman to come? What does it say in verse 8? That he, Naaman, may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Elisha says, "Send send this pagan to me so that he may know where God is. So that he may know that there is one true God and it's not any of his gods. That's Elijah's point. You can look at that and go, well, I mean, he says, so that he may know there's a prophet. Is he flexing his muscles, his mystic muscles about being the, a prophet? No, he's not at all. And we'll see that by the end of the story. But, but what does a prophet say? Does a prophet say, I have said this? Well, the prophet says, thus says the Lord. That's all he ever says. Thus says the Lord. God has spoken. God, this is what God says. That's all the prophet does. All it says, the prophet has no glory of his own. If that's confusing or, or maybe, I don't know if I believe that or not, just read the Old Testament. Look at any of the prophets. How did any of them live? How did all of them live? Fear of the government, hated by the people. God just straight up told Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you have to go and tell the people my word, but I'm going to tell you right now, they are not going to listen to you. But if you don't tell them, I'm going to hold it against you them and they don't listen to you, then their blood's on their own heads. I'm going to tell you your ministry is going to be a failure on the front end. That's these guys. They don't have any glory. They're not looking for any glory. And they don't even have any credibility on their own. Elisha is saying, send this godless pagan to me so that he will know the true God. And look at verses 9 and 10. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and that small fortune that he had with him and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So this entourage pulls up to his doorstep. And what does Elisha do? Look at verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, we've heard that story a bunch, and we've read it in the children's Bible to our kids a bunch, but did you take the time to think about what's happening there? This the, the greatest, the commander of the greatest army in Elisha's known world pulls up to your door and you don't even put down your cereal spoon to go outside and see him. He's at your doorstep and you send Gehazi outside with one sentence. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. That's That's it. That, that's it. I mean, we often wonder, like, why does the guy get so mad? Well, look at verse 11. But Naaman was furious. He was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Naaman is furious. Why? Because Elisha didn't bounce outside the house and go, Oh, hey, you're so awesome. Oh, wow, thank you for coming here. Let me wave my hand over the leprosy and call upon God and do the dog and pony show and song and dance and make it all happen and show you the respect that you so rightly deserve. He didn't do any of that stuff. He sent the servant out while he's inside eating cereal and says, just go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and you'll be fine. That's what happened. He's, the Naaman's like, I expected to be treated a lot better than that because of how great and awesome I am. I expected you to give me the glory that I so rightly deserve. I mean, you didn't do that? And you want me to get in the dirty old Jordan River? We have two rivers back in Damascus that make this look like a slop trough. 
I'm not getting in that water. Now, what's Naaman's bigger problem that Elisha is obviously after? Is his bigger problem leprosy or godlessness? What's really going to kill him for eternity? That's what Elisha is after. And if Elisha had come out, done the song and dance and waved his hand and stood in the sun and called on God, what would have been the net result? Naaman would go, man, it's a good thing that I'm as powerful and wealthy enough to go and find the witch doctor who had the cure. I am great. It's a good thing I'm great because it kept me alive. And Elisha, what does he say? Well, I'm famous enough to merit a foreign dignitary to come to my house and see that, and I went out there, okay. Both of them get glory, and God gets nothing. They net 100, God nets zero. But look at verses 13 and 14. But his servants came near, Naaman's servants came near and said to him, My father, it is great, it is a great word, or rather, is it a great word that he has spoken to you? Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Like, this is not that hard. Just give it a shot. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman didn't need to be healed. Naaman needed to be saved. That's what he needed. And only God can do that. So Elisha tells him to do something medically ridiculous and culturally humiliating. Take your regal, high, lofty Syrian self and go wade around and splash around in the muddy, stinky old Jordan. That's what you're going to have to do. Medically ridiculous, culturally humiliating. And it makes him do it. Now, Naaman can't steal any glory from God. Now, Elisha can't steal any glory from God. Elisha didn't even get up and go see him. Elisha has yet to talk to him. Nobody can get glory from this circumstance except for God. That's the only one left available. And then in verse 15, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. Isn't that what Elisha was that he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, that, that God speaks through Israel, God dwells with Israel? And what, is it, what happens? That's what happens. Who, who is he praising? God. Who is he glorifying? God. Because I, you, you gave me one sentence of instruction. I was so furious at how demeaning it was or disrespectful it felt. And nevertheless, here I am. It must be because God is so great. And that's how he is. And this guy's truly converted. You can read the rest of his story as it goes along. And Elisha still is after the glory of God because he tries to give him that small fortune. And Elisha says, no, I don't want any of that stuff. I don't do any of this for any of those reasons. I do this for the glory of God alone. So Elisha sets this gold standard for, for us as, as Christian leaders and Christian church men and women that we're after the glory of God alone. Because either of those camps, you or, or me and the elders, any other church like that, as soon as we take that one degree off, now that we're totally off. See, pastors and elders, we're the servants of everyone, but we're the employee of one, God, God the Father. And as soon as we get those roles out of whack, then now you become seeking the glory of yourself as a pastor or the glory of your people. I have the biggest congregation, we have the most money, or I am the most powerful and I am the most influential. You can get off base real fast. Pastors and elders serve and love everyone, but they are beholden to God alone. Otherwise, they will pilfer or they will sell the glory of God, like Elisha could have been tempted to do. Because when the under-shepherds become beholden to the sheep, then they are no longer seeking to please the chief shepherd. And the same is true for Jesus' church. For us as the church, sometimes pursuing God's glory alone is the same thing as being accepted by the culture. Sometimes those two are the same things. For example, when Hurricane Harvey hit and we were in Houston and everything's flooded, we got out on boats. And we went out on the boats and we're driving around these flooded apartment complexes and houses and catching people that are coming out of second-story windows. They're trapped in their own homes. 
We're doing all that stuff. We turned our, the, the church into a, a receptacle for donations and all these kinds of things, and we're feeding people who are displaced and have lost their homes. And the culture says, yes, way to go. That's awesome. But why are we doing that as a church? It's just because we believe First John. First John 3.17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So if we, were, we weren't doing it to please the culture, we were doing it to please God, but it happened to be acceptable to the culture. But oftentimes, pursuing the glory for God alone is met with animosity for the culture or from the culture. Just see also the abortion issue, the LGBT issue, on and on and on. So like Elisha, we have to stand firm in the pursuit of God's glory alone, no matter how we anticipate being received, not because of even Elisha, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus loved all of the humans he came into contact with, but he worked only for God. He didn't work for them. The same Jesus who said in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, is the same Jesus who said in Luke 12, 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. How can he say, come to me you all who you are weary, and in the same breath also say, I came to bring division? It's because he works for God alone and he's after God's glory alone. He doesn't work for any man. He does the bidding of his father. And he said so, John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And at the end of his ministry, John 17, 5, I glorified you on earth, God, he's praying, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. That, that's all we're after with solely Deo Gloria. What have you given us to do, God? And we're going to do that. We're going to do that regardless of what it costs. This fifth sola means that when we're commanded to bow the knee to the God of this world, then we have to say, like our brothers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship you have set up. They told the king, uh, we don't have to live, but we do have to glorify God. And he can save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, he will definitely save us from you. So we don't have to keep living, but we do have to glorify God. We may have to say that one day. God doesn't have to alleviate our pain, but we do have to seek his glory. And here's what we cling to. Here's what our brothers and sisters around the world, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day saying, oh, of a Chinese pastor who's stuck here and can't go back to China because of the coronavirus. He's saying that people in his, in his community are, are committing suicide because the government has sealed them into their apartments and won't let them out because of the coronavirus. They're, they're trapped there. We have brothers and sisters around the world that, that are clinging to this promise more so than we are that God will ultimately deliver us, that we will never be fooled, we will never be ashamed at the end for seeking the glory of God alone because he will deliver us ultimately. Rulers and kings and governments will not have the final say. God will have the final say, and this is what he's doing. Look at Titus 2, 13. This is our last verse. It says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. And what's our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory that he inherently, inherently has, we're going to see it when he appears. He's the one who gave himself for us to do what? to redeem us from all lawlessness, the lawlessness in our own hearts and outside of us, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He is making us a pure people for himself that he owns. The God who speaks creation into being owns us. 
nothing can happen. Nothing can remove us from that. John 10, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So we can endure in a culture that wants its own glory or is fine with you seeking your glory. But we just pursue God's glory alone relentlessly, knowing that we will ultimately be delivered. Naaman doesn't always repent and wash. Sometimes he gets angry and brings his army to your front door. That happens. But whatever happens, we cannot be removed from the grasp of Christ. And we are waiting for the day when we see his glory come. The glory that we've been about our whole lives, we will see it come. And that is a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you guarantee that you will be glorified by all of your creation. Whether it be voluntary or forced, all your image bearers will indeed glorify you, every human being. And we gather today as an assembly of the willing that we bow the knee to you today with joyful adoration and willingness. Let's volunteer the heaping of glory to you. However, Lord, you know that this is a task that we fail in constantly, so we pray, God, the Spirit, strengthen and guide us in the duty of glorifying you. And God, the Son, please continue interceding for us when we neglect the leading of the Spirit in the glorifying of God. And Father, we we make our interpretive principle of your word to be the pursuit of your glory. So lead us away from making ourselves the protagonist and the central figures of the Bible. And let us revel and exult in finding more glory for you in the pages of the Holy Scriptures that were yet undiscovered by us up to that point. Lord, we long for the day when every creature in existence sings your praises. We long for the day when the truth of your glory is universally acknowledged and celebrated, joyously celebrated. We long for the day when we are no longer strangers and aliens in this world. So while we wait for that day, we will live for your glory alone. Father, use this word to bless our lives that we might glorify you more. And we pray all of this in Christ's name.